If everything is ready here on the dark side of the moon, play the five tones. As the character of Lacombe states in the film, this means something. This is important. Close Encounters of the Third Kind, released 41 years ago in 1977, was the third collaboration between composer John Williams and director Steven Spielberg after 1974's Sugarland Express and Jaws in 1975. At this point in his career, Williams had been scoring films for 19 years and was already a two-time Oscar winner, but his 1977 output started a meteoric rise that cemented his place in history and defined film music for a generation. The scores for Star Wars and Close Encounters were written almost concurrently but take considerably different approaches to their respective pictures. Star Wars is a classically influenced romantic, traditionally leitmotivic score. Thematic associations are clearly defined and there's much in the way of melodic content. Close Encounters, on the other hand, takes a more modernistic approach and is very much a score of contrasts, much like the film itself. The film is full of dichotomies, visual and oral, and these cross over into the score. Williams demonstrates these contrasts efficiently and effectively right from the outset in the main title. At once it goes against expectations. The music is not explicitly aligned with the white on black credits and sounds uneasy and disordered. After Spielberg's on-screen credit, the dissonant crescendo continues to build, adding choir until... The orchestra lands on a unison C natural, a clearly identifiable and fundamental building block for all Western music. This concept of music as a clear form of communication runs throughout the picture and Williams' score. The five tones, heard at key points, are intended to be a universal greeting, a simple musical hello and an efficient and effective form of communication. Contrast this with numerous unscored dialogue scenes, with characters talking over one another, a Spielberg trademark, immediately suggesting ineffective communication. This is apparent in the opening desert scene set in Mexico, which include three languages, subtitles, and a roaring sandstorm that at times threatens to drown out all the dialogue, whether the viewer can understand it or not. Although outwardly ominous and ostensibly unthematic, William's score for the opening scenes neatly foreshadows the style of material that will be heard towards the end of the picture. The sixteenth note figures in the strings and the woodwinds, coupled with low trombone, which underscore the discovery of the missing Navy squadron, have a reverential quality that will pop up again when we see craft of a different kind later on. There's quite a gap before the next cue begins, and much of the music in the first half of the film is heavily spaced out. This is Williams at his most sparse and efficient, both in terms of quantity of music and its construction. Reductive would perhaps be the best word to describe the thematic approach, with only four major leitmotifs in the entire score. The most obvious long-line melodic material isn't even written by Williams, but is the interpolated melody from When You Wish Upon a Star from Disney's Pinocchio, first heard on screen from a music box in Roy Neary's home. With a small motivic palette, texture and colour become key, and Williams created a unique sound world for this score, utilising a full symphony orchestra with mixed choir and a variety of unusual performance techniques to give an otherworldly atmosphere.
The next cue we hear, titled Into the Tunnel, introduces some of those performance techniques, including quarter-tone wavering strings and low dissonant clusters. It also introduces one of the key building blocks of the score. This eight-note motif will come to represent the concept of obsession, initially focused on Roy Neary. It's only briefly heard here in pizzicato form, but it's tremendously malleable, and Williams varies the key, tempo, and orchestration throughout the rest of the score as Neary's obsession builds. Interestingly, Williams wrote an alternate version of this cue, more heavily based on the obsession motif, giving it an incessant drive not entirely dissimilar to the shark motif in Jaws. It's often used repetitiously to propel the music forwards, and the constant variation in tone and timbre prevents it from becoming too monotonous. As an aside, themes of obsession often seem to bring out the best in film composers, from Bernard Herrmann's Vertigo, which shares some stylistic similarities to the approach taken by Williams, that of building a score out of small motivic blocks, to Howard Shaw's The Aviator. Which takes a more fugal, neo-baroque approach, often infused with uncomfortable dissonance. The next cue, The First Encounter, is notable for more unusual performance techniques. The score indicates portamento male chorus singing with menace, mouth closed, through teeth. And later on in the cue, female choir join with closed mouths, nasal sound, with menace, quarter tone waver. It's creepy stuff. The cue ends with a hint of the first three notes of what will later become another major motif in the score. We'll return to that later. A brief burst of traditional brassy Williams action ends this sequence. Interestingly, Williams keeps the brass reasonably subdued when underscoring the UFOs. Full-blown brass action material only pops up when humans, or in this case the police, overreact and start chasing them. Ineffectual communication on our part again, perhaps. At this point in the film, Neary's obsession takes a new turn, with him experiencing unusual visions. When he returns to the site of the first meeting and sees Barry building a mud representation of those visions, Williams introduces a two-note motif for female chorus. Williams' original intention was to introduce this earlier in the picture, first as Neary sees the mountain shape in shaving foam, then again in pillow form. Its first occurrence in the score has the playing instruction with beatific calm, and it has a semi-religioso feeling to it. 
the two notes are a tritone apart, which apart from making it feel unresolved, makes an amusing musical in-joke. A tritone is often referred to as the devil in music, and in the film, this motif primarily represents visions of what we will later discover to be Devil's Tower, Wyoming. Cute. The film cuts to Dharamsala for a grand introduction to the five tones. Williams and Spielberg went through several hundred variations before deciding on this version. Considering that there are over half a million possible variations based on a 12-tone scale, it's not a bad choice. The diegetic, or rather on-screen usage of this motif necessitated that it be written long before the rest of the score. Williams has sneaked in on-screen references to his scores on a number of other occasions, including The Long Goodbye, where it appears both as a doorbell tone and shopping music, and Harry Potter. But this is the only time where it's absolutely fundamental to the plot. The five tones are used as connective tissue throughout, and here they join the two plot lines together as we see Barry plinking them out on his glockenspiel. I touched on the unusual performance techniques scattered across the score earlier on. In the sequence of Barry's kidnapping, they all come to the fore. It's the longest cue in the film, running a little over six minutes, and outside the finale, perhaps the only one that fits the definition of a set piece. Filled with glissandi, quarter-tone wavering, and occasional aleatoric material, it's an unusual entry in the Williams canon and makes for interesting, although not comfortable, listening. Of course, Williams was no stranger to this sort of writing. His 1972 score for Robert Altman's Images has some similarities. It's written for a smaller ensemble, featuring shakuhachi and percussion interludes from Japanese musician Stomo Yamashita, but occasional similarities are undeniable. After that exhausting material, the score offers a little respite in the form of the cover-up. It's a throwaway piece of militaristic fugato pomp that neatly moves the plot forward to the next act of the film. Neri's obsession becomes all-consuming, and we hear some of the darkest variants of the obsession motif as he yells at the sky. As he falls asleep the same night, Williams presents the revelation motif, the first three notes of which we heard earlier, in its full form for the first time. An epiphany occurs for Roy and Gillian as they see the real Devil's Tower for the first time on a newscast. Williams treats the vision, obsession, and a little whisper of the revelation motif to an extended combined reading.
before turning the obsession motif into a jaunty travelogue piece for Roy on the road. Roy and Gillian finally reunite and continue their journey to Devil's Tower. Williams puts the obsession motif, now firmly associated with Gillian too, through its paces over the next few cues, including a striking horn-driven action variant as the pair escape the military blockade. Having escaped for now, Roy and Gillian lay eyes on Devil's Tower for the first time in person. Williams builds on his previous developments of the vision motif with a whirling, repetitive, dizzying variant of the obsession material to a grand statement of the first part of the revelation motif, filled with an almost religious fervour. The vision motif lingers briefly as Gillian states, I can't believe it's real, but it's not heard again in the score after this point. The anguished, obsession-based travelogue material returns, this time overlaid by a plaintive, uneasy statement of the revelation material. From this point on, it's clear that Roy's obsession has made the transition from vision to reality. The pair are captured with a brief outburst of classic Williams' 1970s suspense writing. Following a brief return to the militaristic cover-up material, Roy's decision to escape is scored uneasily with Stringless Andy, Super Bowl on Gong and the obsession motif once again, first on harp, then doubled on horn and finally an extended legato reading for flute. It's an unusual choice. This type of scoring is typically reserved for scenes involving the UFOs. The act of escape itself revisits the racing material from Roy's first encounter, perhaps becoming a theme for Roy's disobedience, overlaying hints of the revelation material and ultimately culminating in a classic Williams action presto. The version heard in the film is Williams' second composition for this scene. His earlier version was darker in conception, taking a more cautious, minor mode approach to our protagonists evading their captors and concentrating more heavily on the obsession material in Brass and Winds. As we move toward the finale of the picture, Williams changes his approach. Up to this point, music has been used relatively sparsely, but from here to the end credits, it's almost wall to wall. Roy and Gillian continue their ascent of Devil's Tower, accompanied by some classic jagged Williams action writing filled with low piano and stabbing woodwinds. not entirely dissimilar to some of his Black Sunday writing from earlier in 1977. 
The last stretch of our protagonist's climb is not without incident, accompanied by truncated versions of the obsession and revelation motifs reaching for the summit. An insistent, dogged rendition of the obsession motif for Horn and Bassoon drives them to the top, culminating in a moment of warm tranquility as a full, unblemished reading of the revelation motif signifies that they have finally reached their goal. The end of this cue, titled Outstretched Hands, marks a tonal shift as we approach the finale. Whereas the first part of the score features classical influences such as Bartok and Stravinsky, the finale moves towards the impressionistic works of Maurice Ravel with a dash of Charles Ives, Havanas and Rortavara. We arrive at the summit of Devil's Tower just in time to experience a light show, and Williams begins a lengthy sequence of music, both diegetic and non-diegetic, for the conclusion of the picture. This final section of score is almost a self-contained programmatic symphonic work in itself. Harmonically complex and evasive, with constantly shifting tone and colour, this is bravura scoring by Williams and quite unlike anything else in his body of work before or since. Murmurations in the woodwinds are accompanied by sotto voce mixed chorus and figurations from alto flute before swirling 30-second notes in the violins give way to a beautiful impressionistic line for flute over shimmering tremolo strings. The calm atmosphere is interspersed with a few moments of uncomfortable dissonance before a subtle rallying motif in the horns and low woodwinds gives the music drive and focus. This gathers pace and is taken up by other sections of the orchestra. A brief burst of uneasy chorus and agitato woodwinds interrupt before the cue ends with a moment of guarded brilliance. Contra bassoons take up a triplet figure, rhythmically similar to the motif at the end of the previous cue, accompanied by trombone, tuba, cello and bass. Strings hint at the revelation motif before a cacophonous outburst of triplets and tuplets emerges from the brass. Rallying sixteenth notes in the strings are interspersed with chattering outbursts in the brass and high woodwinds, giving way to a lengthy triplet-filled horn fanfare accompanied by swirling clarinets, chorus and bright strings. 
A grand romantic development of the Revelation theme underscores the brief dialogue scene between Roy and Gillian, almost becoming a love theme for the pair. A broken, halting, apprehensive motif in the low winds and brass draws the queue to a close as the alien mothership approaches. This cue is another where Williams originally took a different approach, with dark chromatic figurations in the low strings, violin glissandi, piano clusters, queasy low brass, and a thin, mournful female choir. Swirls of viola, cello, bass, bassoon and clarinet, accompanied by aleatoric low brass, signal the arrival of the mothership, but do not give any clues as to its actual intent. Sixteenth note figurations build in the strings, section by section, and the music becomes a bustling hive of activity before exploding in a moment of brilliance. For the first time in nearly two hours, the five tones actually cross over into the score. A strident, driving, anxious motif in the low strings gives way to a rapturous reading of the Revelation motif, accompanied by the obsession material for the very last time. The orchestral grandeur is interrupted for a brief interlude and a unique crossover between diegetic and non-diegetic music as humans and aliens prepare to converse for the first time using the five tones. It's a unique, intricately synchronised marriage of music and picture and as it progresses takes on a balletic, almost baroque feel. As if this weren't enough, Williams even manages to sneak in a reference to Jaws. Cold, clinical writing for Divisi cello and chorus accompanies the opening of the mothership. Agitated, Solpont tremolo strings give a creepy, chilling atmosphere before calm strings, chorus and woodwinds take over. A peaceful, descending line for harp gives way to an impressionistic trio for flute, clarinet and oboe.
The queue closes with a new development of the revelation material. Non-vibrato strings transition to a slow gliss, then skittish, random, aleatoric material as we see the aliens for the first time. The unearthly tones of a waterphone can be heard in the percussion section. Low strings are periodically interrupted by sol-pont stabs, and the woodwinds and harp attempt to calm the anxious atmosphere. Towards the end of this piece, the very first hints of when you wish upon a star appear. And the melody carries the cue through to a grand conclusion. The five notes are passed peacefully between flute, oboe and clarinet over soft strings. As Roy enters the mothership, the revelation motif is given a final treatment and we seek to the end titles. Williams gives the five tones and revelation motif a spectacular send-off to accompany the ascension of the mothership. Transitioning to When You Wish Upon a Star. And finally, closing the film with a soft, sweet rendition of the five tones for female chorus, glockenspiel and harp. Williams was nominated for two Academy Awards in 1977, Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Star Wars, ultimately winning the award for the latter. In what was an unusual move at the time, Spielberg revisited Close Encounters for a special edition in 1980. Despite being over three minutes shorter than the theatrical release thanks to some judicious trimming, with apologies to Carl Weathers, the film also included a few bits of additional footage, most notably in the finale, showing Roy Neary inside the alien mothership. The value of this edition is debatable, but it did give Williams the opportunity to add another cue to the score. This composition, appropriately titled Inside, was recorded with Boston Pops and the Tanglewood Festival Chorus in April 1980, a few months before the premiere of the special edition and shortly before Spielberg started his escapades with a certain fedora-wearing individual.
Spielberg revisited Close Encounters again in 1998 with a new cut, at the time dubbed The Collector's Edition. This version, essentially based on the special edition but further tweaked and without the mothership interior scenes, remains the director's preferred cut. Unlike a certain other Williams scored franchise, Blu-ray and 4K releases of the film include all three versions. The music has been a part of the Williams concert repertoire since release, and the concert suite has been recorded multiple times. One of my personal favourites is the 1978 National Philharmonic Orchestra performance conducted by Charles Gerhardt, featuring a 21-minute suite of highlights focusing on the finale of the picture. It's now finding a new lease of life as part of the growing live-to-projection repertoire of film concerts live. The live performance is based on the 1998 version and restores roughly eight minutes of music that was dialed out or removed from the final film mix. The music has been released multiple times on album, most recently by La La Land Records for the 40th anniversary. Lovingly produced by Mike Mattesino, this release is utterly comprehensive, sounds fantastic, and is the best way to experience this score outside of the movie at home. Visit lalalandrecords.com for more details. The Spielberg-Williams collaboration continues, most recently with their 28th film together, The Post. Fans of Close Encounters should check out Williams' other science fiction Spielberg scores, including AI from 2001, recently released in lavish expanded form by La La Land Records. Although the thematic material is more prevalent and melodic, there are numerous textural similarities. Minority Report from 2002 is also worth a listen. And most recently, War of the Worlds from 2005, in which the aliens are considerably less friendly. Listen out for the antiphonal timpani. I'm your host, Jim Ware, and this has been a whistle-stop introduction to John Williams' score for Close Encounters of the Third Kind. For details of more upcoming Leading Tone podcasts, follow Leading Tone Cast on Twitter or follow me on Twitter at Jim J. Ware. Have fun and keep watching the skies.